I V M. The Inheritors Podcast Series by Bloomberg Quint. I am Sonu Bhasin, and you are listening to The Inheritors, a podcast series that covers all aspects of family businesses. Today, I am in conversation with Roshan Abbas, who is the managing director at Geometry Encompass. For many of us, Roshan is a familiar voice as well as a familiar face. We have seen him hosting television and live shows. But behind this very public face, Roshan runs a successful events company and has been a pioneer in many ways. Today, he tells us about his journey and the secret of making a partnership work. Let us go right across to Bombay and hear it from Roshan Abbas. Yeah, Roshan, so it's so good to have a conversation with you. It's really been ages since we had a chat. So thank you for taking time out and uh, doing this. Um, you have a very interesting story and I'm looking forward to understanding uh, how you got uh, where you have over the last 20 odd years. So well, thank you so much for having me on uh your show it's lovely to have people part of my journey and where i started to come like like come full circle Uh, it's always wonderful great good so roshan you're a first generation entrepreneur uh your uh, your father was certainly not uh, a businessman so what drove you to this risky world of entrepreneurship especially in an age when entrepreneurship really wasn't such a buzzword he said, I said, I guess necessity is the mother of all invention. Right. And uh, very often what happens is that when uh, I often joke about the fact of saying that people talk about the road less traveled, but what do you do when there is no road at all? So in the in the late 80s, when, when I was, uh, you know, excited about uh, creativity, there were just not enough creative avenues. And for that reason, I had the option of becoming a nine to five jobber who would get a salary, which I was just not happy doing. Um, I was, I was addicted to having an audience at a very early age because I was on stage since I was four years old. Um, and having, uh, you know, constantly seen a few people who had become mini role models for me who were, who were trying their own attempts at creative entrepreneurship. I just found the idea very exciting because uh, my parents had given me a bit of a safety net saying, you know, you have, we, we've saved some money and, and this is for you and you can do what you want till we have this, uh, you know, um, amount with us. Um, I looked on that almost as saying, okay, this is a little bit of a safety net, but I don't want to use it. Um, and, you know, being able to understand, I, I, and I really sometimes I wonder saying, is it a left brain, right brain combination? Why is it that I'm able to see uh, creativity and business go together well, but I just somehow always felt that art purely for art's sake was never going to excite me. It had to have some interest of saying, how do you monetize it? How do you use the audience you build? So I, I think I was just trying to fall, solve some problems as they came along and I was a problem solver. So that's what got me started. 
Right. And, uh, you know, creativity is not normally associated with entrepreneurship. So, right. you know, you talked about the left brain, right brain. Uh, yeah. These are two completely sets of uh, skill sets that are typically thought to be had by different kinds of people. But you kind yeah. of combined both creativity and entrepreneurship. And right. in this journey of yours, uh, do you think that it is the entrepreneurship part of the brain that has uh, uh, made you uh, a success or is it more of the creative? So, you know, which of those have you leaned on more? So, so uh, creative allows me to, uh, you know, be open to the idea of making zero to hundred. So I often, whenever somebody comes to me with an investment idea, I tell them, I said, you're talking to a person who knows how to create, create things out of just thin air. You know, whether it's writing a song, whether it was creating a play, whether it was creating an event, it was all just my imagination. So the creativity gave me the ability to find exciting dreams that I could get other people to see and then they would come up with the money to fund that dream. So the first part, I do think I leaned on the creativity. The entrepreneurship part was largely about saying, as I said, being a problem solver, I would always try and say that if you were to find a set of like-minded people and use them uh, to solve a problem, what would it be like? And, you know, and, and, and again, trying to find uh, people with very diverse backgrounds to work together on a problem again excites me. The, the one other thing about the entrepreneurship part also is that I, I like taking risks and money has actually never been my first motive. And I feel that if money is not your first motive, then the uh, openness to failure, the openness to experimentation makes you a little bit more entrepreneurial in your way. Right. But again, this is uh, this is counterintuitive because if you say money is really not uh, the driving force and you are able to uh, therefore take risks, which uh, uh, which maybe others cannot. But most people who start down the entrepreneurship journey ultimately do have a money motive in mind. Yeah, so, uh, so don't get me wrong. Don't get hmm. me wrong. That I'm not saying that I'm altruistic and money is not important. I am saying that when you start a project, if if immediately the only thing you're concerned about is it is, is its profitability and that will be your decision-making factor, I, I, I in fact, uh, deeply believe, and I mean, Simon Sinek said it very recently, but what he said about saying that most people are concerned about the what and how of a business, I'm concerned about the why. Does it excite me? Does it get me? Will I do it for free? Will I work 24-7 on just the idea without trying to evaluate saying, oh my God, I've given 10 hours of work. Am I getting output? So I'm saying when you when you enter an idea or when you enter an enterprise, does it excite you enough for you to say, I will put my everything into it? Right. Um, step two is, of course, and I, and I have often turned and said that art for art's sake or this coming to the begging bowl to say, can I have your creativity for free? I am not accepting of it at all. Uh, but I'm saying when you start an idea, at that point in time, don't let your first pot of call be profit. Your first pot of call can be, why do I love the idea? Why am I excited about it? What will it do in terms of my audience? What will it do in terms of the problem I want to solve? I, then if you come to the next area is where is, is how I approach things. And I agree that passion is really, really important. And uh, there is no journey that starts without passion. But looking back at your journey and also having interacted with a lot of other entrepreneurs, uh, including creative entrepreneurs, 
Where on that continuum do you see passion taking a backseat and hard reality, practicality taking, uh, you know, two steps forward? Right. No. So, so again, um, very often as I said that my, my first call is does it excite me, which is just my first first decision. After that, is it worth my while becomes my second question and which is where sometimes I have found ideas that I have got people to execute without me being deeply involved. I will not lose the opportunity. So if God has given me an opportunity or someone has thrown an opportunity at me, I'm not the kind who will say, oh, you know, I'll first try and say, how can it be done? I will then immediately input and say for the time that I'm investing in it, what should I be getting and is it worthwhile? So I do that analysis as well. I also feel that many creative people get lost in trying to do it themselves. Entrepreneurs very often try and find a set of people and then build processes and systems that can constantly solve the problem over and over. You know, because if you're the singular creative, it's like it's like Tarang and saying Prasoon Joshi and Piyush Pandey will write great songs. But Ogilvy has developed a system where there are tons of such people who could do great work. You know, right. so I just feel that somewhere if you can build frameworks, which is what I did with, with the business of my first business was events. And I just felt that if you applied the rules of theater to doing experiential marketing and treated your consumer at the end as an audience, you would always think of engagement. You would always think of ways of getting them a lot more interested. And then you're translating any brand brief that came. So that was the methodology I used to use. Now, am I being paid enough for it? So very early on, I was working in the theater group. My theater director was a very well-known theater director in Delhi and uh, had lots of people working with him. And I used to often turn and say that if you're willing to share with other people, um, you will be a great leader. Very often people do what I call lifestyle businesses, which only improve their lifestyles. Um, that's not how yeah. you, that's not how you run businesses. You know, you must be able to build businesses where everyone is a part of the profit. Everyone down the line feels that they are valued, that they get stuff. And, and that's how I built organizations. Yeah. So now that you are talking about building your business, can you take the listeners through your journey of how you moved from stage to uh, the owner of one of the most respected uh, events and uh, consumer interaction companies, please. Uh, so uh, it was it was in '95 that I started doing radio in Delhi, and uh, by about '97 I was doing a lot hosting because I was a radio and television face. Um, now I could have been very happy just coming, looking at a script and hosting, but. When I would be on stage, I would, because of my theater background, look at everything else around me because an actor never treats themselves to be on stage by themselves. It's also the set, the lights, the sound, the music, the stage manager, everything. And I'm very aware of these things around me. And I would constantly go back after one or two events and make my notes saying, if I did this, I would have done so-and-so thing differently. Um, after the first two events, I just couldn't keep my exuberance to myself. And I would tell the client saying, listen, you're doing something wrong. Why don't you do it this way? And because there were such few people who were, uh, I used to find the people who I used to call briefcase booties, you know, haji sarji kar denge. But, but they didn't know the process. So when I used to apply a little bit of my mind and tell clients and other people, marketing heads of companies about the process of where I was thinking from, they would be extremely intrigued. Now, from there came the thing of saying, okay, I can just give you this idea. But because I had learned execution again, because of my background in theater, um, I was very happy executing things. So I would say the problem I have to solve is 
singer has a confluence that's happening where they want to play that. I can write the play and make some money, but if I produce the play, I can build almost an ecosystem which I could then repeat. So I could do that kind of a performance for multiple clients. So that would excite me. So I started finding more creators and bringing them to my cause. And I often tell people saying that if you can sell a dream well, if you're a great storyteller, you can get many people to join in your cause. So that's how I started recruiting people initially. Um, everything used to be very ad hoc. People used to come together for a project or two projects, but it was in 97 when we did a mega project for Motorola. And when we did that launch, it was a paging launch. We were able to do many things in-house, etc. And we were by the end of the project sitting on a sizable chunk of money. Um, many of my friends again turned and said, this is the time when you buy yourself a big car. And I was like, you know, that's not what I want. I want to fuel other dreams. I don't want to buy a car. And so I invested all that money in, in an office and in finding my partner, Sukrit, um, who came on board. He was just out of mass communication. And the two of us then started looking for like-minded people. Uh, we looked, I mean, high and I can't tell you, so no, there were, there were, we found people at pawn shops, we found people <laughs> at photocopying stores, we found people uh, who were possibly consuming a play and watching a play and coming out. That's how we recruited our first set of people. So you, and, were, uh, sorry, yeah. so you were looking at the attitude of people. You were not really looking at... Because, because I was hiring for, for abilities that were as yet not templated. Right. Hmm. Um, if you were looking for someone who's a writer, there are no writing courses. What I was, I just couldn't find. It wasn't English literature that would work. So therefore, had the person written street plays and skits, etc. In college, was one thing I would look at. If I wanted to find a production person, production I didn't have a scientific base. So people who were jugadu in nature were my first port of call for that. So one was really hiring more for the attitude and a little bit of the passion and a little bit of you know. Uh, what one made, um, I, I've always turned and said that a resume is really not worth its weight in anything. It is it is the live resume of the time you spend with a person that tells you how good or bad they are. Um, we did this and we did this successfully and because our ideas were really, you know, they used to come, everyone, everyone was coming from right of field, we would come from left of field with something and clients would just love the creativity we came with. Two years into that, we realized we were running a company that had a lot of creativity, a lot of spirit, but no systems. And we were becoming chaotic because, oh, we made money. How do you share it? Oh, uh, people work late at an event. What time do they come the next morning? Who reports to who? It was so informal. I used to call it a bhaichara company. <laughs> and uh, that's when we looked and hired our first professional CEO who we would report to. So we turned and said that rather than, you know, oh, you know, I'm the owner manager, uh, Sue Fertile was working with uh, a company at that point in time and she had done lifestyle marketing in the US and she was a very system and process driven person. So we got her on board as our first CEO. And I often turn and say that that whole turning of the needle from spirit to system and then finding its balance in between is what happened. So that was phase one of Encompass. And that was the that was the decade, uh, you know, all the way till 2008. We just kept growing larger and larger, uh, doing all kinds of things across the country. And by the end of it, I think we had about 200 plus people. We had about seven offices. Right. Can you hear me? 
I think there was some. So there was that. That was phase one. So keeping to phase one, uh, Roshan, uh, from uh, from being the boss of your organization to getting in Sue, who then became the professional CEO. Was there I, any 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 uh, change that you and Sukrit had to make within yourselves? Because you know the rest of the team would have been looking at you and getting I, their cues from you. So how did you uh, kind of? change yourselves to fit into the new organization so so you know i uh, i i again because i have at any given point in time run multiple careers because because bear in mind that i was still hosting television still doing radio still hosting live events i i was very keen to make myself redundant in the process very early so i handed over charge to sukrit and sue and sort of almost became a notional presence would come in on a board meeting or come in when there was a key pitch or a key idea that was required um and the whole and i had moved to bombay by this time and sukrit was in delhi and i realized that uh, there was a problem which was that my my not being present was actually not working too well for us because i really thought that i could let the reins go uh but without proper handovers without building layers in the company because again we were we were a we were almost just a two layer kind of organization but now we needed multiple people and multiple layer levels so i think building almost a group of people who you would listen to was important so obviously we were we were very cognizant of what she wanted to do but it wasn't just what she wanted to do it was what we heard from our employees uh, i mean i think we started in the very very early days we started doing these 360 degree reviews um asking people to tell us what they wanted uh what would make a better office what would make us a learning organization not just a doing organization so all of these things uh you, is what we were doing you were doing do you wish you were smarter well so do we but the next best thing we could make you sound smarter and to help you with this endeavor we are simplified Ooh. a podcast uh, that attempts to break down the complex world around you with a little knowledge a lot of poor jokes and a ton of random trivia episodes out every monday on the ivm podcast app or wherever you get your podcasts see ya for employees in an owner uh, driven business it's fairly simple uh, to build their rapport because they know that the owner is there and the owner is not going anywhere else but when the owners are part of the business and you have a professional ceo how did your employees make a a, a shift and the reason i'm asking you is that today when you have a lot of uh, uh, family businesses that bring in uh, their uh, external ceos while at the same time the inheritors are also part of the business the employees kind of don't know you know how, which side to align with uh what has been your experience and what can you tell them so i think there are two important things one is the fact of saying what is your code of conduct now most people who hire professional ceos expect them to be professional till they are not in the room and if the owner comes in the room suddenly it should become a different equation now i just don't believe in that if i have given someone the responsibility then i need to set the first example because everyone's looking at me for a cue am i listening to the ceo do i take cognizance of their ideas um so that was the important thing to do that so sukrit and i sat together and worked on an entire template and once the template was frozen it was going to be implemented for the next 6 months and we would review it after 6 months and 
we would hold our peace till that point in time. That was step one. Hmm. The, the next thing is that I always tell people saying, um, again, as you rightly said, people will look at the owner for cues of how to behave, of cues. Um, they have been so open, in fact, to people um, giving us feedback, giving us criticism, which very often what I call Lala companies have not had, uh, you know. And, and that is the that is a huge chasm which they need to cross because how can they hear someone else criticizing them? Um, the the other thing which I've always built as a rule is to turn and say that you know comment in public, criticize in private. So if you want your CEO to be the leader, comment them in public. And when you have an issue, discuss it behind closed doors. You know, don't let people get to see the fault lines in public because then they will jump onto the same bandwagon. And they take advantage uh, of it. Play uh, one against I, I had so many people who came at that time, Sunu, telling me, saying, do you know what so does not? Don't tell me. The CEO sits in the office, go and tell her. Right? Right. And 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 that is important. And then and at the end of the year, when you're doing your reviews, in your reviews, make sure that you are you have a year to the ground. You're not even becoming absolutely blind. But if the company's performance is good, if the health is good, if people are saying they're happy at their work, then if all parameters you're scoring, then what's the then you don't need to lend a year to one person who wants to come and give you a little bit of a to snitch a little on what's happening. You know, I mean, you know, I have I have seen that happen in huge organizations that somebody will have one little sidekick. Oh, you know, be there. That is the company man. Um, I never let that happen. I never let anybody become a company man or the boss's man as it was. Um, and people tried. People tried relentlessly. Uh, so that was one big change. Yeah, but Roshan, actually you can't blame the employees, poor employees either, because uh, the owners are there to stay, but the CEOs may change. So they really need to keep both parties happy, which is difficult uh, a lot of times. You know, but, but what happens is that when employees try and get, you know, I, I, there's, a, there's a thin line and in India very often we cross this line between personal and professional. I have been to event companies where a general manager is actually parking cars for guests at a private function of the owner. Now, you know, you, undermining the person's professionalism, you will never get a professional result out of them. Um, you know, and, and I have seen again this happen very often. So, uh, I know it's difficult, but for example, uh, at any given point in time, I have never let people turn and say that, oh, you know, I guess I have an open door policy, but bear in mind that what you openly come and tell me at my door, I will openly go and discuss with my CEO and then we will together, Sukhvit became the CEO after two years because Sue had a personal assignment, etc., which she had to, she got married and, you know, uh, she wanted to uh, move and because she was in the family way. So the whole thing was that Sukhvit took over and... I was again very clear saying, Sukhrit, your strengths are this, this, this. I think you need a strong finance person because neither you nor I are good at finance. Um, if you have a good administrative head as well, it, it will help. Um, and making yourself redundant. I mean, you know, when, when a Mr. Birla, etc. Run, run companies today, they are not presented every company. You know, mm-hmm. uh, there is an ethos, there is a culture, there is a there is a, a charter of values. And and again, I mean, I, you know, I sometimes think people used to think we were mad, but in, in two years into starting the company, we used to be doing these offsites, and we would be talking to people about what are the pillars on which we are built. You know, what do we do? What do we not do? What defines an encompassed person? And I really felt a lot of pride in saying that from a unorganized sector to make a organized company that becomes 
you know, deeply respected as a marketing partner. Uh, and, and, and I also, I must say that Sandeep Goyal, who used to head Rediffusion, was a friend of mine. And because I used to spend a lot of time, I used to see how he structured the agency. And I used to say that if we have to structure ourselves and have to gain the respect of people, otherwise we must structure ourselves similarly. So, so you know, so bringing professional systems and structures does help and keeping yourself as an owner out of the business is is really, really critical. Um, because again, if you, if you can make yourself redundant, that's when you can get onto another ship and sail it in another direction if required. Right. And now, so you have, so after so you did have an owner as the CEO. So, yes. you know, as, 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 as partners of a business and having a professional CEO, you know, in yourself, you had to deal with a partner who was also an owner yep. and a CEO. What yep. were some of the challenges that you went through? Because it is so, impossible that when there are three people, they will yes. all agree on everything. So how did Correct. you handle yourself and what are the learnings that you can share with some of the uh, others who, who would be listening in on how to handle uh, two different kinds of uh, partners? So, 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 you know, so when I had different kind of partners, again, when, when there is a question that impacts the company in its overall, if you, if you have decided along with the owner partner that this is where you want to be five years from now, and the professional team is not delivering that, you need to find a solution with your owner partner. You need to call in the CEO and say, this is what's going right, this is what's going wrong. Um, when the and see, I had a strange situation where my partner was also now playing the CEO's role. So while we know the larger vision of where we are going, he had certain deliverables. So uh, as a as a professional CEO at the same time, his job, if he had an incentive, that incentive was worked based on certain deliverables. If he had key reporting structures, they remained in a particular way. He couldn't suddenly change them to take advantage of them and shift them. Um, again, in hindsight, it sounds a lot easier. But yes, there have been times when one has faced the conflict of turning and saying, hey, I think you're treating this matter more as an owner and not as a professional. Um, and, and we have had that. So so I would not say that everything works out beautifully. You will face that, uh, that you know, that, that, that point of conflict and sometimes have to make a choice. But it is these choices that actually show, uh, I think, a company's true merit and its metal. Um, and, and, and again, as I keep saying that, the more you hire people, again, there was a David Ogilvy thing where when people used to join, they used to give them these Matrushka dolls where one doll was inside another and another. And they would say, if each of us hire people who are smaller than us, we'll be a company of, you know, uh, dwarfs. Yeah. And if we had to each hire somebody bigger than us, then we'd be a company of giants. Um, and frankly, I've always maintained a black book of people I wanted to hire and always reached out to them. I did it yesterday with, with a new venture because, you know, there was somebody who was chasing for a while. I said, listen, I've been waiting. Now you're free. Come and do this. You know, so, so make that list of people you want to work with, you know, dream up your, your ideal team and keep filling those spots because it will keep changing. And as a set of owners, you know, if you can just imbibe and differentiate the personal from the professional, you know, and it doesn't happen all the time, but it can hold you in good stead. Yeah, and it's easier said than done. Yeah, I uh, totally agree. I totally agree. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, it's, it's simple things like turning and saying that, you know, I mean, I'll give you a, a small example. Okay, in the incentive, there's a car that you can give to the CEO, but because he's the owner and he wants a different brand, can he change it? You mm -hmm. know, can he spend a little bit more? Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. now, 
if it's his own money, he can take it out and add top up. Exactly, but if he tops it up and that is looked upon as the CEO's card, does the next reporting person feel that, Are, mere paas choti hai. Uh, should I be getting something bigger? Because, you know, they may, they may not know that there was a top up. You know, mm-hmm. there are, there are, I'm telling you, these are, these are what class you fly. So there was a time when I would be a host mm-hmm. and I would get the privilege of flying business class. Mm-hmm. And there were times that I would be going as the head of the company. And if it was not, it was the early days and we were not doing well. And Campus would buy me a economy ticket and I would decide if I wanted to upgrade or not, uh, you know, with my own right. money. And it's, it's just, I'm saying, you know, and life tests you on the small, small things. I have seen people write off personal exp- expenses as professional expenses on many occasions. Uh, you know, I, I, I want, I don't know, I think it's a lot of the ethos that comes from my parents because they were teachers and my dad had turned and said once, that my life is a man who is a man and the knowledge that he acquires and nothing else. So I don't know, that always stays at the back of my head and I, I don't know, I base a lot of my decision making on those principles. Yeah, it is actually, you know, the people that uh, I speak with, uh, it is what we call the middle class values. Uh, which are I, I completely agree. Completely agree. And, you know, if you ask me to define the middle class values, I guess I'll have to scratch my head and, you know, put down a certain uh, list of values. But uh, generally, generally speaking, the middle class values are the ones that uh, hold people in good stead, especially right. when there is when there is manmutab, when, when there is, you know, a difference of opinion. And... Uh, you know, data shows that most family businesses or promoter-driven businesses fail to uh, uh, propagate because of these small differences. What, right. How, you know, you have shared a lot about, uh, you know, your personal uh, dealings, but if there was two mantras that you needed to give to people who run businesses with partners, what would those two things be on, on specifically handling conflicts or manmutav? Um, you know, when it comes to handling conflict, if there is a third party who can be an objective observer, I have felt that to be very important. I have done that on multiple occasions. Uh, so we had a particular shareholding and there was a need to change the shareholding. And it was a CEO who was a great friend of both Sukrit and me. And he came in and said, listen, this is what I would advise and this is what you need to do. Uh, so I think finding an objective third party who... Best case, you respect them and you don't know them very well personally. But if you know them personally and you respect their decision and you know they can take a professional call, is always good when you want to solve conflict. The second thing is to separate the emotion from the problem. You know, the ego from the issue. Um, how dare... The recording in the United Yes, yes, please start. So, so as I said, that one thing obviously is finding out, finding that third objective individual who both of you respect and trust uh, to try and solve that conflict. Uh, the second thing is keeping your ego out of the issue. You know, how dare you say this to me? That just doesn't work. Uh, I've always tried to say that, listen, and you know, I mean, I think actually, frankly, between Suktit and me, the amazing part is that uh, many of our, many of our colleagues who worked with us many years, I say, you know, okay, or they'll tell him saying he will only listen to you. It's good to know that at least we have each other's ear, even today, you know, I mean, after 20 years of working together, if you have that ability. Because it seems we are always working for towards a common goal. I mean, if, I, if, I, if in 2008 we decided to sell to WPP, it was because we had a common goal of saying the 
we have taken a disorganized industry and made it organized, but how do we make it more respectable in the marketing mix? And how do we leave something which is, you know, going to be a legacy uh, for the next set of people is what we is what the was the problem we were trying to solve. Yeah, but it is it uh, you, since you do talk about uh, selling your company, was yeah. it an easy decision? Because you know, with with, with uh, getting respectability, getting money, getting access to a larger ecosystem, there is also but, giving up of the control. Um, yeah, it is. But but again, uh, you know uh, what you talked about saying middle class values. Now now in in those values, I think one of the important things is also to know what you're good at and you know and i mean there's so much posturing that i see people do very often but you know know what you're good at but what you're not good at if you can accept so we we even when we did our sale we realized in in one year because we visited can and you know i was on the promo jury and then we met up with martin sorrell and all the entire team from wpp and uh, you know they had colvin harris and everybody from jwt who were our partners and we realized that we were weak on brand and we were weak on predictability of business because the event business was, you know, you know, you were not trying to dig one deep well, which is what advertising would do with the client and then keep, uh, you know, getting water out of it. Uh, so, so this whole thing of contracting and long-term clients is something which we said we've got to develop a lot more of. Financial jurisprudence, because the year we, we did the handshake is the year when suddenly there was a big dip. And if you remember, 2008-2009 was for tough years. Yeah. And and we had to make this terrible call of letting go of a couple, uh, I mean, not a couple, actually, about 50 people at that point in time and close down two, three offices, which we realized were not, they were, they were servicing offices, not business offices. They were not getting us revenue. They were just servicing the revenue that maybe Delhi or Bombay was doing. Um, and we had to take those calls. So, again, can you detach emotion and objectivity, which is such a difficult thing to do? But I, I, I see it, you know, when I, when, I, when I travel abroad and I deal with a lot of entrepreneurs internationally, they are able to do it a lot better. But I think as Indians, we get deeply emotional about everything we do. Last week, I said, "Listen, you have this ability to 
keep doing ventures. So I I keep saying that things that I can't do myself, I find either I either find the problem and find someone to solve it and I fund them, or I partner with people. So 2011, uh, I recommended a bunch of acquisitions to JWT, but they were very small. They were companies that were all under crore each. And I said, but if you invest in them now, I promise you in five years, they're going to be huge. And everybody was like, no, it's too small an acquisition. There's too much stuff that happened. I said, okay, fine. I want to definitely invest in two, three of these. And I did. And one of them went on to become Glitch, which is today an acquisition that happened last year by WBP. And it's the, it's amongst the top 10 to be, the, they will kill me if I say a digital agency because they're really more a modern marketing agency for millennials, as they call themselves. Um, but a bunch of young people who I saw were doing very different things, very exciting things. And I said, listen, I can come on board. You can either give people stupid money or smart money, right? So right. Uh, you can invest with stupid money, which is the profit. Smart money is money where I may not have put in so much money, but I'm there as an advisor. I'm there giving them value in terms of the experiences I have had. I'm connecting them to people. I'm bringing new services on board. I'm bringing new clients on board. Um, that's where I, I often tell people who are seeking out venture capital saying, don't look for lazy money, look for smart money. And you know, and smart money makes such a big difference. Yeah. Uh, so I've, I've done that serially. And Sukrit says, he says, you know, he has been tunnel visioned only into income. He believes that's his lifeblood. But, you know, I, I need uh, transfusion every now and then. <laughs> right. right. So it's actually been quite a dream journey. But as you Absolutely. sit here today uh, on Valentine's Day, uh, yeah, right. what, are, what, are, what are some of the thoughts that you have for the future? So, so I feel that there's a major shift uh, that's happening where my parents always saved for a rainy day. My generation spent a little bit of money, but said, "Listen, I must have I must have assets that can help me in a rainy day." And the next generation just doesn't want to own assets. So, I find a very big shift happening in terms of attitudes, where millennials are looking out only for. Uh, creating great experiences, great memories. Uh, they're very cause-driven. They're a lot more global in their view. They're, they're a little more activists in their nature, if you ask me. So, so I combine all of this and I keep saying that in the space I was, I was in the space of building physical experiences. Um, I then learned how to build virtual experiences and now I want to really build understanding millennial culture. I want to build things where, where millennials come together as communities. So I, I built this thing called Commune, which is a spoken word community. It's almost going back to my roots because it has deep roots in performance art and theater and helping people create, uh, you know, in B and C towns as well. So I really feel that, you know, I mean, uh, sometimes the, the philanthropist in you, right, it comes to the fore because you're saying, I think I've done enough for myself and for my next generation. Now what can I do at a larger level? Yeah, so you're uh, behaving so, like a millennial yourself, Roshan. When so, so that's why I keep saying. So somebody told me that anything millennials are those people born between 1980 and 2000. I said it's rubbish. <laughs> millennials is a mindset. Uh, you've got to have that mindset to be a millennial. Are you are you tech savvy? Are you willing to use technology to your end? Are you uh, you know as I said, far more acquisitive of experiences rather than physical assets? And I'm like that. My my wife is scared that one of these days I will sell everything and give it to charity. <laughs> <laughs> Right, right. Yes, yeah, so uh, 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 Roshan, it's been a pleasure uh, talking to you. 
and uh, I hope I, I made some sense because you know I'm sure you talk to a lot of people from from a very different no, so, kind of background. I so all I, I keep coming. All I can say is that uh, I think you spoke dil se, which is what makes a difference. And <laughs> and 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 you have indeed shared experiences, which have been personal experiences, which I'm sure that anybody who listens to you uh, through the podcast is going to carry back a lot of learnings. So that dil se works, the mark se, of course, but the dil se works. <laughs> so, yeah, I think. इंप्लीमेंटेड Why are all our politicians so corrupt when not all of them are bad people? I'm Amit Verma and in my weekly podcast The Seen and the Unseen I take a shot at answering all these questions and many more. I aim to go beyond the scene and show you the unseen effects of public policy and private action. I speak to experts on economics, political philosophy, cognitive neuroscience and constitutional law so that the insights can blow not only my mind but also yours the seen and the unseen releases every monday so do check out the archives and follow the show at seenunseen.in you can also subscribe to the seen and the unseen on whatever podcast app you happen to prefer